Good morning, good afternoon, good evening uh, to our global, truly global audience and uh, welcome to this LSE public event uh, brought to you by LSE Ideas, the foreign policy think tank here at LSE. It's run by the legendary Professor Michael Cox and Chris Coker. Our discussion will be on the economic response to COVID-19 as seen from a cross-country comparative perspective. My name is Lutfi Siddiqui and I will act as chair of our conversation today. Before we dive in, three uh, administrative points. First, the Twitter hashtag, hashtag LSCCOVID19, one word, hashtag LSCCOVID19. Please tweet away to your heart's content. I don't know, maybe take a picture of yourself watching us uh, and, and so we get a, a visual of the, the audience. Um, secondly, please be reminded that we are recording this event and a podcast and a video will likely be made available uh, afterwards. And thirdly, please use the online Q&A function on Zoom to ask questions. Uh, somebody will be looking at the Facebook Live uh, page, but there's more of a chance that your question will get answered if uh, it's on Zoom Q&A. And when you post your question, I'd be very grateful if you could please uh, identify yourself. And you don't have to wait to post questions at the end. Please uh, feel free to uh, type them out, uh, just dump them there as they occur to you. Okay, so what brings our four distinguished panelists together today? And what's the outcome that we'd like to achieve at the end of these 90 minutes? As the tragic global pandemic rages on, apart from the public health response, which rightly is center stage, uh, we're witnessing at least two other things uh, playing out in real time. One, unconventional economic policy domestically, and two, new outlines of economic diplomacy internationally. And so I wanted us to get a feel for what it's like to be in the thick of it. We have theories, we have framework, we have historical references, but wouldn't it be great to listen to senior practitioners who are currently in policy execution or advisory roles? And wouldn't it be great to remove our blinkers, our single country blinkers to see if we can learn from each other? Uh, I don't mean in a negative accusatory manner, but in a genuine, positive, constructive spirit of learning. So that's the idea. Let's meet the panel. Dr. Eilish Campbell. Dr. Eilish Campbell is the Chief Trade Commissioner of Canada. She leads a global team of trade and investment officers around the world and also leads work across trade support services, uh, including export finance and foreign investment. She started her career as a trade negotiator on the Doha round of WTO negotiations, and she holds uh, a doctorate in international relations from Oxford. And most importantly, she has a master's from the London School of Economics. Um, we will go from Ailish to uh, Mr. Kazumi Nishikawa-san, so from Ottawa 9 a.m., I believe, to 9 p.m. in Tokyo. Um, Mr. Kazumi Nishikawa is the Principal Director in the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, METI in Japan, currently in charge of the Healthcare Industries Division, the hot seat. 
I first met Nishikawa-san um, some seven years ago when he was executive director of Japan external trade organization, JETRO, in Singapore, leading the charge on what Abenomics means for East Asia. Nishikawa-san has law degrees from Northwestern and Georgetown universities, and he's a qualified attorney at law in New York State. Back in London, Rain Newton-Smith. Rain is the chief economist at the Confederation of British Industries, CBI. She and her team provide business leaders with advice on economic outlook and risk. And in the other direction, advising the government on policies related to British business, which I imagine, I'm guessing, might be highly intense in recent weeks. Rain was previously head of emerging markets at Oxford Economics, and prior to that, she worked at the Bank of England. And again, most importantly, Rain has a master's in economics from the London School of Economics. Last but not least, Dr. Ruben Abram. Ruben is CEO of IDFC Institute in Mumbai, a think tank and a do tank focused on state capability and political economy issues. He's a non-resident scholar at the Marin Institute of New York University, a senior fellow at the Milken Institute, senior advisor to Swiss Re and honorary advisor to the New Zealand government. He has a PhD from Columbia University. So there you have it, Canada, Japan, UK, India. Four countries, six bilateral relationships. Canada and Japan have their Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation the, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Trade Deal, TPP. Canada and, um, and UK are members of NATO. Uh, they share a sovereign. And at least uh, for now, there is a trade deal through the European Union. Um, UK and India are members of the Commonwealth. UK would like to do more in a post-Brexit world. India and Japan have an upgraded relationship now. They call it a strategic partnership. And of course, India and Canada, we've all seen Prime Minister Justin Trudeau dressed in Bollywood attire. So this is how the flow will go. We'll now ask for some opening remarks from Ailish, then Nishikawa-san, then Rain and Ruben in that order. They will take each take between five and ten minutes. After that, I will ask a set of questions. And after that, I'll open up it up to questions from the audience. If it turns out that we are accumulating a lot of questions during the opening remarks, then we might get straight to your questions. So without further ado, uh, Dr. Ailish Campbell, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning, Lutfi. How are you? Hello. I've, I've got one of my co-workers right here with me. This is, uh, I have several handy co-workers assisting me with all of my efforts. As you can see, we're working from home here. Yes. Both of us, yes, her and her brother. So my, my co-panelists will join me for some of my opening remarks this morning. Um, as you can see in Canada here, we're working from home. Um, and I think it's interesting that we started off this conversation sort of randomly with the, this uh, BBC uh, child in screen moment, because in fact, I think that's, you know, the human element of this pandemic is something our Prime Minister, uh, Justin Trudeau, is very focused on um, taking care of the health of our families and co-workers, first and foremost, um, and an unusual suite of supports. Uh, things like the um, Canada Child Benefit have been extended for households. We've instigated an emergency unemployment uh, assistance program, uh, an emergency uh, benefit for all Canadians of $2,000 a month, $500 a week, uh, as well as wage support instruments. 
There's also a whole suite of things that this pandemic is bringing out um, related to the most vulnerable, um, increasing funding for women's shelters to ensure that people have safe places to shelter, uh, for example, or keeping uh, youth in childcare longer so they're not graduating from some of our social services during the pandemic. These are some of the, the unusual or um, you know, key pieces, if you will, that, that I don't think are getting enough focus along with care of, of senior citizens. But my day-to-day -day job, as you outlined, Lutfi, is, is in trade. Uh, we are focused on keeping supply chains open. Canada is deeply committed to the multilateral trading system, uh, to security of supply for medical goods, for PPE, personal protective equipment, uh, as well as uh, essential workers needing to travel around the world on air bridges. So the challenges are many, but uh, as I opened, I think what we need to do is continue to focus first and foremost on the, on the human elements of this, to remember what we have in common, which is battling this pandemic together, that the weakest link uh, globally will affect all of us because of the nature of, of contagion. Um, and the need, particularly as challenging as it is, and, and Canada has lots of lessons to share, of combining strong industrial policy uh, and a financial system that weathered the global financial crisis uh, relatively unharmed. Uh, we can bring domestic strengths and domestic focus and capacity to this while staying open to the world. Thanks. May I? Uh, this is Nishikawa from Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, Japan. Uh, Greetings from Tokyo. Uh, I have the three points. Uh, I am in the position uh, in the uh, Ministry of Economy, Trade, but uh, focusing on the healthcare. So therefore, the, together with the Ministry of Health, uh, I have tackled with then response to the COVID-19 in the last uh, three or the four months. The first point is then we think the concept, uh, understanding of the concept health and the economy, not health or economy is very important to overcome uh, this challenge. The best simple things poor economic activity leads to medical collapse. You know, poor supply chain management, especially the medical goods, leads to medical collapse. And the medical collapse leads to worse economic impact. So how much people's, not only the medical related people, but also the business people's or the citizens can share this concept is then success to the key. In Japan, the, we were very lucky, and my Prime Minister uh, strongly focusing on the, this point. And uh, thanks for the Japanese peoples and Japanese businesses or the communities, the wide public understanding uh, can be observed uh, with regard to this concept. And also, lots of voluntary contribution from the community, citizens, businesses, to the medical peoples uh, can be observed. This is very good thing. And also Japan was a little bit, you know, uh, comparatively the better in the sense of the, to diminish health gap. Because then like other, you know, maybe the Canada or the UK, uh, we have universal health coverage. So therefore the, our public health insurance covers the entire population. So regardless of the incomes, the people can access to the solution to the COVID-19. And also, the, we don't uh, have so much tension about lockup or the freedom. The, because the Japanese people, Japanese business, many people were very cooperative uh, to such kind of 
you know, uh, understanding such kind of concept. This is one. And the second thing is the supply chain. Of course, I am from mystery in industries, mystery trade. So therefore, the supply chain of the automotive and the supply chain of the electronics, uh, semiconductors, uh, I, we are very keen. But this time, the supply chain of the medical materials. This is crucial. How to find, of course, first, shortage of the specific materials. The people is easy to understand, easy to know the shortage of the energy, shortage of food. However, the tiny medical materials, like Dr. Eilish said, you know, the PPEs, masks, ventilators, the components of the ventilators, the very few business people are well known about it. So therefore, the, how to find the, you know, the shortage point is the challenge. And of course, how to fill the gap. Uh, January, February, when the China or the East Asia, we observed lots of expansion of the COVID-19. At that time, masks, PPEs, you know, we, we were very uh, difficult time to procure. But from March or the April, you know, the, not only Japan, but also UK, US, Italy, the Europe, uh, OECD countries, the, where the lots of ventilators or the important medical goods, medical equipment, uh, producing these countries uh, experienced expansion of the COVID-19. So therefore, the shortage of the ventilator, shortage of the medical, uh, you know, high-tech medical goods, we observe. So, of course, now we have to take care the uh, international global procurement of the important goods. But we faced the necessity to create uh, domestic production to a certain extent. How to boost the domestic product of the masks, PPEs, ventilators, uh, test kit, everything. Of course, the medical equipment companies or the pharmaceutical companies should play big role. However, non-medical related peoples, non-medical related businesses like then Toyota, Sony, Sharp, the electronics, automotive, manufacturing companies have to support. And they actually uh, contributed a lot. Sony created, supported the uh, production of the ventilator. Toyota is now creating face shield. And Sharp, is electrics company, is creating masks. So these kind of beyond sectors collaboration was key. And also other collaboration, the medical profession and businesses, the beyond ordinary relationships can be, could be observed. And we, as a Japanese government, uh, supported such kind of new collaborations by connecting different peoples. The third point, the twelfth future, of course we, are too early to predict. Uh, of course, now we already observed the economic impact, and we created, my Prime Minister created two uh, stimulus uh, budget uh, in last uh, three months, and more than the trillions of Japanese yen. Uh, however, we are not, we are too early to predict the future. We have to be very conservative. We have to be very preparative for the future. But I know, uh, corresponding to the loot phase, you know, the forward-looking element. Of course, we can uh, see the digital transformation, remote work, these kind of things, remote education, 
remote medicine, online tracing, face recognition, a lot of you know, digital application is going on. And also, we can um, observing new business trend, like you know, to whether the sharing business is good or the new type of you know, the, uh, travel, new type of entertainment, new type of, the, new type of the communication. This is a challenge, but this is a new opportunity for the new businesses and new trade uh, things. And finally, the global cooperation. The, of course, the TPP or the RCEP, other FTAs are important, but the, we have to think about what we should create towards the future to overcome COVID-19. But the, I stop here and enjoy Q&A. Thank you. Thank you, Nishikawa-san. I have uh, a few questions for you that I'll come back to shortly. Uh, Rain, over to you. Excellent. Uh, well, well, thank you. And it, it's so great to be part of, of this international uh, panel, because I think, as, as Ailish said at the beginning, you know, never has there been a crisis that has hit so many countries at the same time. And, and the only way we're going to face this, this challenge is, is by working through it together and, and by learning uh, from, from each other. So this is uh, absolutely vital. I think maybe to give you a, a perspective uh, from the UK and, and uh, from how we've been approach, approaching this, I think, uh, you know, as the CBI, so, so my job in some ways is to talk to businesses on a daily basis across all sectors from uh, national, you know, for the National Farmers Union is, is part of our membership to the very big, the Nissans, the global car manufacturers uh, to uh, everywhere. So, um, uh, and I think the other thing, the other big part of my role is talking to government departments around uh, policies that are affecting business. And I think it's been so valuable uh, in this time is because I think the real challenge when a country is trying to design the economic uh, response is you can you can design these very clever policies, but if a business doesn't understand how to access them or where they can find them, then it's you know you've built it, but but people aren't coming to to get the help that they need. So we quickly recognise that we could play a real role in not just helping our members, but any business in the UK to find the information. Uh, they need, and I know a lot of organisations have stepped up to the to the plate uh, on that. But I thought what's probably most helpful is just to articulate two big challenges we saw early on, and how the government we worked with the government uh, to help uh, address them. So I think first of all was um, absolutely about how we could build a bridge to the other side of of this crisis, and just make sure that we get as many viable businesses over to the other side of this crisis. And that's the terminology that the Bank of England have said. How can we use the financial system to create that bridge? Because we know that eight out of 10 businesses have faced real challenges around cash flow. Of course, this crisis started out uh, as a health crisis and, and, and that's the primary focus. But it, it very quickly became a challenge for every country's uh, economy particularly when you had at any, you know, one moment in time, we had over 70% of the world economy, uh, you know, in, in, a, in some form of, of lockdown. And so we know in the UK, we had almost half of businesses who had absolutely had had to shut their doors for some period of time and therefore had no revenue 
uh, coming in and and that access to finance just became so important. And the second big element was how can we protect as many jobs and, and livelihoods? Because, you know, that's what the role of businesses are all about. It's how we can all participate in the economy, how we can support our families. And, you know, this crisis has been so deeply personal for, for so many people, but supporting jobs and livelihoods just became the real, real focus. Um, uh, and I think, you know, it's, it's the background that does help. I started my career at the Bank of England. So that was really useful when we were working with the Bank of England on the design of, of some of their schemes. And I think you had at the Bank of England, we had a, they set out a commercial paper scheme for lending for some of the investment grade companies. But very early on, we had businesses who, who said, well, look, I don't have a public credit rating how do I, you know, but I know from my balance sheet, I am close to investment grade. How do I prove that? And, and it was just some of those very specific examples that we could say to the Bank of England, look, we have a company, uh, but they don't have a public credit rating. How do they get one quick enough uh, to be able to access your scheme? So it was some of the very technical details and being able to work through uh, and talk, uh, you know, at, with the officials about how some of the challenges businesses were facing on the ground and I think the second big challenge actually at the other end on, on the finance that very quickly became apparent is, you know, and this is very easy for economists to fall into. We're used to people who have a bank who go to their bank and get out a business loan. Surely that's easy. But you forget that in, in the UK, there are uh, six and a half million businesses or five and a half million businesses rather who have 10 employees or less. And of those four and a half million only our sole traders or only have one employee. And a lot of those businesses have never gone to a bank to get a loan before. They have operated by borrowing from family and friends. Um, and so you can't just say, go to your business banking relationship manager and they will help you get a business interruption loan scheme that the government had set out. Um, and so one of the things we worked with the government and, and it was working with the banks as well, uh, was we need a scheme for these smaller businesses that's automatic, that's quick, that you can get access to funds almost within 24 hours. And again, that you have a really simple form you have to fill out that isn't complicated, uh, that you can read. And, and so some of the very practical things we did was almost review that form before it was eligible. But I think us and other business organizations and the government, just being clear, we needed something that worked for these small businesses was really, really important. And uh, that's how the bounce back loans, as they've been come to know here in the UK, uh, how that evolved. And those did have a 100% government guarantee. And I know we may have uh, questions about what is the right amount that government should be guaranteeing of many of these loan schemes. I know the UK uh, isn't alone in, in having those sorts of schemes. Um, but that that was did become hugely important. And it was just the importance of getting cash at speed to the businesses uh, who need it, that was so important. And the second big plank was how can we support as many jobs as possible in the UK? Um, and the real challenge we faced actually, and it, it sounds, and this is, it comes down to these crazy uh, details in other countries like in Germany, they have longstanding schemes to provide direct support uh, to jobs either on a temporary or permanent basis. But in the UK, 
we didn't have a mechanism to make a reverse payment to a company. So even though the Treasury recognized, our Ministry of Finance recognized there was a challenge, uh, we as businesses were saying we need a way of supporting jobs through this. The trade unions uh, were very keen, but there technically wasn't a mechanism to deliver it. So it was a very clear problem and we had to work to solve that problem. So we were coming up with ideas. Could you use the tax system? Could you make a reverse national insurance contribution? That's the tax you pay in the UK as an employer for each individual employee. And in the end, they found a definition of a furloughed worker, which was a very old fashioned definition. But it allowed, importantly, employees while they were being supported by the government to essentially stay at home and not be able to work, but allowed them to keep their existing employee rights. And that was something that was really, really important. So I think for me, the main lesson from that is that if you have everyone working together with a clear focus on the outcome you're trying to achieve, you can really make that policy happen. Um, but it's, you know, often it isn't just about the economics. It's about the mechanics. How can you build an IT system fast enough to deliver the policy you need? And I have to say, it's been phenomenal in the UK. And I know this has happened in so many other countries, how the civil service have worked through the night mm. to make some of these things happen uh, at speed. And I think those are some of the, the heroes of this crisis. Uh, that will come out uh, over time. Because the other thing you have to remember, and I think uh, you know, others have said this already, is we're all working in these strange circumstances. You know, uh, I'm quite used to working from, from home, but not everyone is. Uh, you know, everyone's dealing with their families, their, their kids, their dogs uh, running around in the background. And that, that makes it more human, but it also means the pressure that people are under is, is higher and, and the emotion, right? I mean, I've had business leaders on, on the phone in tears because they are worried about um, uh, the people who work for them and they want to keep going, but they can't get access to finance. And then I've had other moments where they've, they've called in tears and said, thank you, that announcement the chancellor made yesterday has saved thousands of jobs in real time. Um, so it's when you realize this is really high stakes for so, so many people. Uh, and it is about how we collaborate, how we find solutions uh, to the problems in real time. And just the power of getting businesses and uh, the workers' voices as well. And that's where we've certainly joined together with the Trade Union Congress here in the UK, uh, when we've both been pushing for a policy that we think is really, really uh, vital uh, and just working to solve uh, all those problems in real time. And I think just just to sort of end with where I think the next stage of the economic policy response is now moving towards, I think people are now really starting to think, what have we learned from this crisis about the way our economy operates? Uh, and this very much to Kazumi's point, what have we learned about the capability we have here in the UK, we know we're very good. You know, we might be able to be one of the countries who develop one of the vaccines, but do we have the manufacturing capability to be able to produce all the glass vials that need to go alongside that? You know, we have global supply chains and how we keep them integrated and functioning well uh, is so important. And I think everyone said, you know, how can we keep some of the more sustainable 
uh, ways of living we're seeing now at, at the moment. I'm sure in some of our busier cities, the clean air that we're all experiencing now, uh, because we've seen uh, you know much lower congestion, much lower air travel, I don't think anyone wants to see as brutal a transition to a low carbon economy as we have at times seen in the past few weeks, but it does show you what is possible. So how can we get that transition to a more sustainable green uh, economy? Um, you know, these are the things that people are, and, and also a better work-life balance for so many people where we are keeping uh, our families close to us while we're still able to work. But I think the only thing I'd finish by saying, and I think this is something that's very sobering, is just in many economies, despite all the hard work uh, that we put in place around economic policies, we are going to see a rise in unemployment and operating in a world where unemployment is high and just how brutal and scarring that can be for so many people is going to become so important. And I think that's where we need to focus our policy in the next phase is as we get new entrants coming into the labour market, how do we support them to find job uh, opportunities and how do we create dynamic, inclusive economies around the world? Great. Thank you so much, Rain. Lots to chew on. And um, certainly uh, I was positively impressed by the speed and scale and scope of the economic response to, to this. Um, the pandemic response is a different story, perhaps, but we can I'll come back to you with some questions. Um, Ruben, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Lutfi, and uh, <clears throat> thanks to the London School for um, having me on this panel. Uh, I'm also well aware that um, I'm the only representative from a developing country, so my perspective might be slightly different from the ones that have been presented thus far. Um, so I just uh, want to say that most of my observations are based on running a uh, track two effort uh, alongside various governments uh, and a lot of the insights that we've gained during that process. Um, so to start with, um, you know, there is, I mean, this is true even in a non-COVID situation, but there is no such thing as India. You have to look at the Indian experience on a state-by-state -state basis. The overall numbers are, we are at number nine in the world now. There's about 160,000 uh, confirmed cases. Um, also keep in mind that the rate of testing is fairly low, so that may be an understatement. Um, but there's massive differentials between states. So the city that I live in, um, uh, Mumbai, uh, has approximately 21 or 22% of the confirmed cases. Uh, the state of Maharashtra, which is where Mumbai is, is about 36% of the cases. So Maharashtra has by and large performed quite badly, um, especially given the fact that you know, it, has, it actually is amongst the Indian states, it's industrialized, it has a fairly good resource base and so on and so forth. But equally, on the other hand, you have to keep in mind that there are other states. So let's take the state of Kerala, which has probably had one of the most extraordinary responses to the COVID uh, uh, pandemic anywhere in the world. So let me give you the numbers on this, right? So the first infection in Kerala was on January 30th. Uh, Kerala, by the way, has four international airports. So it's by far the most globalized state in that sense. There's people moving in and out. First case, Jan 30th. The population of the state is 35 million. Um, and people are keeping on moving in and out. Until um, date, and uh, they're actually going through their third wave uh, at this point, point of time, they are at about 1,000 confirmed cases and four deaths. 
Okay, so that's comparable to the very best responses that you've seen in the world, right up there with Taiwan, right up there with Japan, right up there with some of the best performing countries in the world. And it is a sizable population at 35 million people. So there is enormous variance within the country itself. So um, the, the other puzzle in India, and I suppose in a lot of developing countries is the death numbers are very low. So you can, you can basically say that the confirmed cases are lower, perhaps because testing is not adequate, et cetera. But especially in a, in a democratic situation, it's very hard to hide bodies. So even if you assume there's some slight variance, that still doesn't explain why the death numbers all across the developing world is actually so low. So in the case of India, we've got, whatever, 160,000 um, confirmed cases. Deaths are at about 4,700 or so the last time I checked. So on a deaths per million population basis, uh, the UK is at, what is it, about four or 500 people uh, 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 deaths per million population. The US was at about 300 odd and India is at three, right? That's a huge differential uh, and it's inexplicable and somebody needs to understand what on earth is going on there. Now, let me come to some of these sort of generalizable observations that we've made. Uh, the first is, I think, you, can, you just cannot treat this as a law and order issue. And several states in India have treated it as a law and order issue. And the minute you make it into a law, law and order issue, rather than us versus COVID, it becomes us versus them, which is exactly the wrong response that you actually need. You want a response where the community is all in. And so states that have managed to pull it off are actually states that have done reasonably well. Uh, another point to raise, uh, and I think Rain flagged a version of the same problem, which is you need clear lines of communication. Um, so the, the last I checked, the Indian government across the board, state and uh, federal government, had issued about 4,000 notifications, clarifications, clarifications to clarifications, and so on and so forth, uh, which in any ways is in highly bureaucratic language, which actually makes it really hard to interpret uh, at, the, uh, you know, at, the, at the level of the common person. Uh, now, if you ask the government, their, their response to it is, they're actually faced with new information. They're basically changing their mind, you know, to go back to the old Keynesian line. Uh, I, and I don't know where I stand on it, but it certainly creates confusion. So I think, again, states where there have been very clear lines of communication have performed well, where from the top to bottom, everybody's speaking in one voice. That really helps. Um, now, having said this business of state versus federal and the gap there, uh, also, keep in mind the fact that in, in, in India, state, uh, sorry, healthcare is basically a state issue. So at some level, it is better dealt with at the state level. However, the federal government has also invoked both the Epidemic Act as well as the Disaster Management Act, which actually lets them overrule a lot of the things that the states are doing. Right? So there's a certain amount of conflict there as well. The other thing that we've very clearly come to realize, but especially in cities like Mumbai, is that it's all easy for people like us, especially those of us who are on the panel, to talk about social distancing or physical distancing. But it's a privilege. It's a privilege of the middle class and the rich. It is not something that is even feasible in a slum, for instance. So if you look at the slums of Mumbai, where there are people, six, seven people living in 200 square feet of space, to tell them to maintain social distance is just impossible. So we need to basically think through uh, you know, what works in an environment uh, like a slum and so on and so forth. Um, the, I think the other thing that perhaps is not fully understood in some developing country context is that the point of the lockdown is not to eliminate the virus. 
the point of the lockdown is to build surge capacity within the healthcare system so that when the cases come there's enough surge capacity in the healthcare system to deal with it and that the lockdown also sort of creates the clear sort of understanding that this is serious and so therefore you need a change of behavior when the lockdown gets lifted and hopefully that is what we'll see when we actually have an actual lifting of the lockdown but a lockdown cannot go on forever the economic damage is severe so the so the last estimates that i saw now these are not official estimates but the unofficial estimates that i've seen is it's 100 million people have lost jobs this is a staggering number um and this is more than likely an undercount um the the other problem that you have is a very large number of migrants have basically left um and have gone back to their home home villages uh, home states and so on and so forth from the big cities now what this does is twofold one is on the healthcare side it is very likely that especially asymptomatic migrants are carrying the diseases back to places where there's very little health infrastructure to actually deal with it right so that's one part of the problem the other part of the problem is what happens if migrants don't return right there's a whole range of urban industries that actually depend on migrant labor so what happens if these people don't return so a good example of this would be real estate and construction which in india is the second largest employer after agriculture heavily depend on migrant labor now what happens if these people don't actually show up similarly but and this point has been raised several times msmes there's been a severe hit to small and medium enterprise uh, what what are the ways and means in which they can be brought uh, back so um, i think to sum it up in terms of the state responses i think the one clear thing that you've seen both internationally as well as within india is that past experience with pandemics help so whether it's a taiwan whether it's a vietnam whether it's a kerala all of them have experienced pandemics or it not not pandemics uh, an a disease outbreak or a infectious disease outbreak have dealt with it much better because they've actually had that uh, experience and then closing up on the sort of international dimension of this i fully expect a reconfiguration of global supply chains uh, i think more and more countries are going to understand the fact that you cannot basically have such concentrated risk the fragility in the global supply chains is severe and so i think a lot of countries are going to rethink the concentration of risk in the global supply chains and so my guess is that you're going to see a move away especially from china and so then the question becomes who are the ben- potential beneficiaries of something like this so if i had to basically look at it very quickly the easy beneficiaries would be the vietnams the bangladeshis the sri lankas and the indias of the world the question you have to then ask is have these countries done the structural reforms that are necessary to basically allow for the movement of supply chains outside of china and i'll close with that thank you raven that's uh, that completes the first sweep of the globe i think we have a lot to uh, to go with and the the questions are also coming in fast and furious uh, on the chat room um Elish, let me go back to to you, please. And um, my question is around um, the the heat of the moment of the last few last couple of months. I guess um, I think you were in India just before things flared up, and and you came back, and and I've been reading in the press about how Global Affairs Canada has become the travel agent of Canada. How you guys are. 
setting up air corridors for cargo, repatriating people, um, text messaging contacts to get landing rights, so on and so forth. Tell us a bit about that, please. Sure. Well, um, on that point, uh, we first and foremost had an unprecedented action here in Canada, which was the closing of the Canada-US border for an extended period of time for the first time in our history. Um, that's the longest undefended border in the world. It's uh, more than a billion dollars of trade that goes back and forth on that border every day. Uh, and it's a huge amount of interconnectivity on uh, logistics. The vast majority of North American product actually travels by road. Um, about 50% of our trade goes by road. Then you get into maritime and, of course, air logistics as well as rail. So uh, that's an unprecedented situation. And our foreign minister, Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne, from the day that uh, the planes were grounded, began building out air bridges. And I think, uh, you know, Rain touched a little bit about on this. Uh, you know, first and foremost, you come to a set of questions around needed domestic capacity and, and certainly those air bridges uh, and building connectivity for us, you and Ruben are bang on about the supply. 50% of global protective equipment comes from China with orders of magnitude difference in exports from entities like Malaysia, Vietnam, Germany, Switzerland, and of course, depending um, on the equipment, I'll call it mass market PPE, gloves, aprons, masks, very much uh, coming out of China, Malaysia, and of course, more expect, uh, more, uh, I'll say, uh, sophisticated medical equipment, me ventilators, for example, having deep supply chains uh, in the US, Germany, Switzerland, Canada, and elsewhere. Uh, the, the point is that, uh, first and foremost, and, and all the panelists touched on this, this was a health crisis. This was a crisis for citizens. This was a test of the ability to keep people safe. Uh, and that's where our foreign minister, working relentlessly with our consular and our uh, ambassadors and our teams all around the world, just did an incredible job. I, I focus on trade for my day job. We were all focused on the safety of people sheltering in various locations and then getting them home. So, so that's why, you know, when, when we as business people or, or as public servants look at how we're testing ourselves, you know, the, the KPIs of last fiscal year have to go out the window and we're into whole new ways of measuring our success and capacity. And the first is addressing safety, those risk issues. Then um, the, the last point I'll conclude on is the security of those supply chains. I want to say three things. Uh, the first is that countries are taking measures to control and understand where PPE is in their countries. And that's, that's, an, that's an essential task and citizens demand no less. The key is that we wanna be transparent about these measures. We want them to be notified. We want them to be time limited and specific. Secondly, we all want to be understanding what our capacities are so we can move PPE inside of our countries to hotspots in the UK, in India, in Canada, in North America. Um, and this is where, you know, long-standing relationships, uh, you've seen Canada and Mexico, for example, are exempted from U.S. prescriptions around keeping PPE inside uh, the domestic market because of the importance of keeping the entire uh, North American supply chain moving, uh, including for 
pharmaceutical goods, which we provide to the U.S. We provide much of the, um, some of the fiber and inputs to make N95 masks from Canada. So that, that has created a, a kind of not only just national, but also regional responses. But this point about risk and understanding where your supply chain is, the, I want to conclude just on a, on a kind of generalized point. Understanding either from technology, from a technology perspective, digitizing these supply chains, understanding the control of these supply chains, the just-in-time delivery model, and then breaking those down into essential units that need to be stockpiled or better controlled, increasing domestic capacity, but then also diversifying locations and qualified suppliers. I'm very concerned about the number of businesses that are, uh, are starting business in complex markets like China for the first time during this pandemic. This is not a time to start trying you know, new relationships, rely on trusted suppliers, test all the material that you're getting. Um, and I think Ruben is bang on. There's also an opportunity here in addition, because we're not going to see a diminution of demand for PPE. China will be able to maintain a steady state amount of PPE and now we have to layer on a massive amount of additional capacity in order to serve the private sector, senior care workers, people moving uh, by public transit who also all now need to be wearing masks together in order to diminish transmission of COVID. We have to use this time-limited uh, moment where some of us are still in social isolation and now economies are coming out of it. We have to use this time to build that capacity and layer on not not replacement supply chain chains, additional ones, which is why we're working so closely with our Trans-Pacific partner uh, nations uh, like Vietnam, uh, and going one standard deviation away from traditional suppliers and pivoting towards those we know that can make high-quality certified mask uh, equipment. Uh, for example, in India, India Sri Lanka, uh, in in Mexico, in Chile, for those of us in North America. So. Again, I, I want to really focus on the fact that this, this should be additional supply chain um, and managing uh, risk, not closing uh, borders or uh, thinking that we can suddenly pivot from, for example, China, that's an essential supplier and will remain so uh, for the foreseeable future, given the market demand. Thank you. That takes me uh, very neatly into the question that I have for Nishikawa-san. Ailish just said that it's China plus as opposed to away from China. Um, as part of Japan's stimulus program, I think in US dollar terms, if the whole stimulus program is roughly a trillion dollars, some $2.2 billion is earmarked to pay companies to leave China. And I think some $200 million of that is to pay companies to come out of China and go to a third country. So I wanted to ask you about uh, this strategy. Is the um, idea to reduce dependence on China because you're too concentrated in certain things? And then the 200 million that is there to assist companies to go to a third country, which countries are you thinking of? Is it we have on the call, we have India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Indonesia, um, any preferences? Uh, thank you. Uh, may I? Yes. Uh, thank you. Uh, it is fair to say that we don't want to make you know, production 
to leave from China. But the diversification is uh, very important. The, for example, the roughly 80% of the Japanese mask uh, you know, production uh, supply is relying on the China. But on the other hand, surgical globes, the 70% of the Japanese surgical globes is, comes from, uh, is coming from Malaysia. So the diversification of the procurement is a key. And uh, in general, the PPEs or the masks or the uh, low-tech uh, you know, commodities are traditionally made in China or the, but gradually expanding to the Vietnam and uh, Myanmar, uh, you know, Cambodia, uh, Laos, and of course, the India, uh, you know, Indonesia, uh, in not only in Asian region, uh, if we see. So therefore, the diversification is a very key. But on the other hand, the, especially we learned a lot, importance of the domestic production. The certain amount of the, uh, you know, the capacity uh, we should seriously think about the, to create the domestic production, uh, to, to boost domestic production in emergency times. The, of course, the, we cannot provide 100% masks uh, toward Japanese medical hospitals, uh, you know, ordinary times. However, the, we should have certain extent. I don't know whether 10% or the 20%. Uh, but um, on the other hand, let's think about ventilators. The Japan is proud of manufacturing things. However, the 99% of the Japanese ventilators has relied on global supply. Comes from US, Canada, you know, the, uh, Sweden, Switzerland, and uh, Germany. So therefore, that we are seriously thinking about to create production site uh, in Japan. So that not only diversification uh, regionally, globally, but also certain amount of the you know, domestic production that every country uh, should seriously think about, especially that uh, I would like to respond to the Ruben, Dr. Ruben's uh, point, of, point of view from developing countries. It is fair to say, with regard to the masks, the PPEs, everything, that I observed lots of price competition uh, from Chinese market. The masks, the usually the you know four cent or the five cent, very cheap one. However, the you know fifty cent, sixty cent, seventy cent, the developed countries can afford it. However, the you know developing countries or the LDCs cannot afford it. So therefore, the in emergency times, the especially not only the developed but also developing countries have to think about the domestic production as well. That's my view. Thank you. You're mute. I think you've muted yourself. How about now? Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Great. Um, I wanted to combine my question, Rain, to you with a question from the audience, from Aisha Amani from Pakistan. She's a medical student in Pakistan. Um, and her question is, one of the biggest challenges for policymakers right now is lack of precedence to draw on. This crisis is hitting different sectors differently. Is it reasonable to pursue a policy of fundamental restructuring to address productivity? Um, my question to you, and I think they're related, 
is that um, Nishikawa-san, in his opening remarks, ended by saying that we're looking at the new world, the new shape of the economy. Um, how does the new world order look like? Uh, in Singapore, they have a very strong linkage between the immediate relief and response effort and the reshape effort going forward. In the UK, I get the impression that while we've been shock and awe when it comes to the relief part of things, it feels fairly laissez-faire in terms of where the chips will fall going forward. Are we too squeamish when it comes to planning? Do we think it's you know only for the Communist Party or do you think we, we are doing it and I'm just not aware? I, well, look, I think, I think there's lots of different things wrapped up um, in that question. Let, let me try and, and tackle a, a couple of them. I think one is this, this broader issue around restructuring of, of the economy and how do we let that play out. And it, it does speak to what I was talking about at the beginning, that I think at the very in the early weeks of the crisis, I think conceptually what we were trying to do in terms of policy was almost preserve the economy statically as it was then. So uh, this had been a health crisis. This was very different to the global financial crisis where arguably there were asset bubbles in some areas uh, of financial markets and there were you know, maybe some areas where you needed a bit of restructuring and in the way in different, you know, there were bubbles in the economy that maybe needed to play out. I think here, no one was saying there were, was any, this wasn't caused by a fundamental structural problem in the economy. This was a health crisis first and foremost. And as we rightly sought to address the health uh, crisis, this then had knock on implications for our economy. Um, and so the first point was just to almost preserve the economy as, as it was. There was no reason to think these businesses weren't viable as they were. So let's support them. Let's get them to the other side and let's protect all the jobs that depend on those existing businesses. But as we move forward in six months time, it, we want to move from preserving existing jobs to preserving job opportunities uh, and we want to move from not just preserving existing businesses, but to allow new businesses to be created. Um, and yes, there will be some businesses that maybe won't be viable in two years time, but not just because of the social, you know, the physical distancing that we may need to see for longer in some uh, businesses, but also the way we've changed in our experiences. So I think one concrete example of that is commercial property, right? I think there's certainly from the businesses I've been talking to, people, you know, those who are very office-based and said, I don't think, you know, we're looking at our global sites. We don't think, we think we're going to be reducing the number of people we have in, in offices. And that isn't just about the response to the health crisis and, and people sitting close to each other in a physical office. It's also the realization then in a lot of business and professional services, people can do these jobs uh, from home and they may prefer to do so uh, because they don't have to do long commutes. So there are some structural adjustments that may need to happen uh, to the economy. And where that's in keeping, I think, with the type of economy we want to build. So if that means we're seeing less people get into their cars, drive to a place of work, create pollution and, and the externalities associated with that, and we can build cleaner cities, 
then that's probably something we want to do anyway. So as a government, you want to sort of step back from that and, and, and allow some of that process uh, to happen. But it's really difficult, right? Because at this stage, no one really knows you know, where we're going to end up, how maybe we'll all revert back to our old behaviors uh, in six months time. So I think that often speaks to to governments thinking about policies that support across the economy and aren't necessarily sector specific. I think where you want to, it's more about supporting technologies rather than sectors. So coming out of this, what do we want to see? Low carbon transport, right? So I want to see the support for the car industry, if there is any, be focused around electric vehicles, around low carbon and, and hydrogen. And um, and let's support the development of hydrogen technologies and carbon capture storage and some of the green uh, technologies uh, we need. Um, so I think that's the challenge around the structural change we might see uh, in the economy. Um, And I think you had a a sort of broader question almost about this, you know, industrial strategy, industrial policy, you know, what is the sort of UK philosophy around that? And and I think to my mind, look, I think the UK has never been quite sure whether we want an industrial strategy or or policy or, or not. But again, for me, it comes back to the better way of doing an industrial strategy is not saying I'm going to protect this sector but it's looking at the technologies and the capabilities you need. So one of the things this crisis has shown is, as we know, the UK is really good on research. We're great. We might come up with the next vaccine, but where we've been shown to have less, we've lost some of our manufacturing capability, right? So we haven't been at the forefront of some of the manufacturing of testing. And of course, um, uh, Nikish Kawasan has talked very um, uh, convincingly about the challenges around PPE equipment and having that sort of capability. And we haven't always kept that. So what are the kind of core capabilities you need as an economy and making sure you have enough of that or enough um, of places you can get that outside the country that, you know, you don't have all your eggs in one basket. I think that's certainly uh, a learning, but it's more broadly for me, it's about how do you support the technologies you want to see in the future um, and how do you nudge the economy in, in the way you want it to be rather than saying, I'm going to save the car industry as it is now or the airline industry as it is now. I think we need to think about how those industries want to evolve and how we help them to get there. Great. Thank you, Rain. Um, Ruben, I have a question for you and then we'll go into questions that are for whoever wishes to answer them. Um, And let me combine my question with a question from the audience, from Saif Kamal. Um, And it's to do with, at its core, it's to do with this lives versus livelihood um, trade-off, if it is a trade-off. I think you mentioned that you thought isolation is a luxury in countries like India, where you have a large informal sector, migrant labor. Um, Over in Bangladesh, for example, you have a ready-made garments industry that uh, contributes to a large part of export incomes. And we're hearing stories about um, supply contracts being discontinued. So the economic um, uh, hit is real and there isn't a lot of runway uh, in there. So if you can't do lockdown, 
and you can't be totally laissez-faire either, is there a smart lockdown type strategy that works for a country like India, for a country like Bangladesh, where you have dense population, dense poor population, but you also have pretty good digital infrastructure? Sure. So, um, Lutfi, I think the way to think about it is it, it's lives versus livelihoods to start with. But at some point, it does become lives versus lives because people will actually lose their lives because of the economic downturn, right? Because people are living hand to mouth to start with. So, so that's the problem in developing countries at its core is that very soon it becomes uh, lives versus lives. So yeah, absolutely. You need to find some sort of balance between the two. Um, and so, um, and, and so this is a model that, um, you know, some parts of my team has developed with uh, a core research group at Chicago, MIT, uh, Warwick, and a couple of other places, um, which is this idea of adaptive control. So the central idea of a good analogy to think of when you think of adaptive control is when you drive a car, you use the accelerator and you use the brake. And how you use the accelerator and how you use the brake actually depends on the context in which you're driving, right? So in certain contexts, you basically press the accelerator, certain other places you press the brakes, depending on what you're seeing around you. So that's the central idea of adaptive control. So the way it works is the core number that it's actually looking for is the reproductive rate of the virus. And so the assumption that it, it's making is if the reproductive rate is below one, then you are effectively green. So if you think of it as a traffic light kind of model, if you're below one, it's green. If you're between one and 1.25, let's say you're amber, between 1.25 to 1.5 or more than 1.5 is a certain other color, right? So, and, and you can basically bring it down to Uh Oh, we can't hear you. Ruben. Um, we still can't hear you. I'm not muted, but I, I saw that. Okay, you're back. You're back. Okay. Um, yeah, so what I was saying was you can actually do this at an extraordinarily granular level, assuming you have two things. One, you have data available. And the second is you can control the mobility between one color and the other color. So what I mean by that is you can move between a green zone and a green zone, but you can't move between a green zone and a red zone, right? So you have to have the ability to do things at the granular level. And if you do so, then you have some amount of control in terms of, and, and uh, the other thing to keep in mind about this model is that you basically feed in data almost on a daily basis and you revisit your decisions every two weeks. So this is not some overarching model that's telling you some grand story about what the epidemic is going to do three months from now, but it's basically letting the virus tell you, the disease tells you what to do. So that's the model that we are slowly beginning to uh, socialize uh, in an environment like, uh, like India. Thank you. Thank, thanks, Ruben. Um, there's a question for everyone from Martin, LSE PhD student from Kenya. And the question is, what do panelists think are some of the factors that explain the differential responses to the same pandemic? And we've touched on some of that. But do these factors likely apply to other global challenges such as climate risks, many of which are transboundary in nature? 
do you think the response to climate risk should also be differentiated? Who would like to, to take that, please? Uh, Ailish. Yeah, look, I think this is a fantastic question. And I think um, we have lots of lessons uh, from complex issues, including, for example, financial intermediation and bringing more people into the real economy and climate change that now apply to this pandemic response. And a couple things are, are clear. Number one, this is a, a multi-factor, highly complex set of responses. There's no one silver bullet that solves all of these problems. You need to have a, an overarching plan and then be committed to uh, a, a complex set and understand uh, in terms of the target that you're trying to reach, it's, it's a, it is a lot like climate change uh, flattening the curve. You have a very clear macro objective and then there are multiple complex systems that have to be managed in order to bend that curve down. It's, it's very similar to climate change in that sense. It needs a whole of government response. As Rain was talking about, I think very effectively, there is a corporate and private sector debt market here that has to come in to support the pandemic. There is government support. There are um, adaptations that have to happen, um, uh, you know, loan uh, forgiveness or, 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 or temporary deferrals. So there's, there's a health piece to this. So I, I think that's an absolutely fantastic question. I think the other thing that's so interesting, if I could actually try and layer some of that, that question um, and integrate it together, is that I can assure you that there are nations who are saying, despite the uh, incredibly complex uh, challenge we have in front of us with COVID-19, we are not going to change our commitment to things like climate change. So the question is not how to do one or the other, but as many of the panelists have described, how do we now layer on what we know about inclusive growth, what we know about the need to have sustainable, environmentally clean solutions uh, and economies with then the response to the crisis. And this is where, uh, you know, to, to provide a concluding thought, I think for everyone, no matter where you're, you know, it's, it's fantastic to see people joining this webinar today from India, Pakistan, uh, from, from uh, North America, from all over the world. Um, policy responses will be very different, but I know that we will not do them in isolation. Uh, we have to go back to some of the human factors, uh, you know, the very basics of taking care of our children and households uh, to develop a vaccine. Uh, or to develop other mitigating healthcare solutions that can address the worst effects of this. Canada is, for example, working closely with the African Union to take all of the lessons we've learned on PPE procurement and help them build out their digital systems. Incredible entrepreneurs uh, and the African Union are building their own digital procurement um, uh, web-based portal as well as supply chains. So it's sharing some of those lessons to make the results more evenly distributed, although there will continue, of course, to be um, differences. And, and the other piece to this is governments cannot solve this by themselves, and the private sector can't solve this by themselves. And the best research that's happening, and we're seeing incredible innovations about how to measure uh, asymptomatic carriers and, and different variables coming from academic learning. This is, this is an all-hands-on-deck um, integrated set of solutions. And so that's where I think one of the key questions we should each have for our leaders, business and, and, and public sector is tell me how we are collaborating together. And, you know, do we all have a, a similar vision of the macro goal that I talked about that flattening the curve, 
that's where societies where information is shared, that data is accessible, uh, that it can be inputted uh, also and, and accessed by citizens and challenged by an open media, as well as then work together. Uh, I, I look to our colleague in Japan uh, that has such strengths in combining uh, industrial R&D and government capacity. And that's where, uh, for example, North America has so many lessons to learn uh, from Asia about the strength of this multivariate, uh, multi-partner approach to combating COVID. Great question. Uh, Ruben, um, before you answer that, could I just lump it with another question from Pedro from Colombia? Um, so Pedro is asking, if you look at the sum total of the economic response strategies implemented in developed economies, how much of that is replicable in developing countries and, and how much is not? So I'll throw that into you as well. Sure. Um, so again, I agree with everything that Ailish uh, said, but there's one major difference between climate change and what just happened, which is, and it, it's worrying in, in some sense because uh, the difference is that the costs are tangible and immediate. And that gives you a response. So the question that you have to ask is with climate change, is that what it'll actually take? That you actually need to face some really heavy and tangible cost. And that's when the global community actually responds. It's a worrying thought, right? Now to step back a second, I mean, if you had asked me the same question uh, on differential responses, say three months ago, my answer would have been the capability of the state. I would assume that high performance states would deal with this really well, low performance states would not. Uh, well, turns out the evidence doesn't uh, support that at all. A lot of the really high performance states uh, in Europe and in the West are the ones who've got absolutely hammered by, by COVID. Um, so then it sort of goes back to, I think what I said earlier, which is I think if there's one common factor to all the governments that I've seen that have really had a really, really good response. It is past experience with an with a epidemic outbreak. That's the differential. Because people in Japan, people in Taiwan, people in Kerala, they took it seriously from the get-go. And I don't think anyone in the West took it as seriously. So for instance, if you just look at Taiwan, I mean, for those who are interested in this, you should really look up Taiwan and their response system. So, uh, so first of all, a large part of Taiwan's surveillance mechanism is actually surveilling social media in China. So by mid-December, they had already, already realized that there were these unexplained pneumonia clusters mm. that were occurring in Hubei province that were not responding to classical sort of pneumonia drugs. By, Jan th sorry, by December 30th, I, I, I said, I, if, I, if I said mid-Jan, sorry, it's mid-December. By December 30th, Taiwan already had a response in place. I mean, just think about what the West was doing on December 30th. Right. So, so I, th I think that's the big differential, which is if you've had past experience with something, you will take it very seriously. The problem is the past experience also exerts very high cost. And, and that's the bit that I worry about, which is in the abstract, are people mentally capable of doing the ledger in terms of the cost? Right. So, so to, to, to the, the second question, I think some of it is replicable, some of it is not, right? I mean, because the, the fiscal situation in, in developing countries is very different from uh, the fiscal situation in developed countries. So 
while it might be easy to say that uh, in, in the UK that you can pay 80% of wages, I'm not sure the Indian government can afford to pay 80% of wages. Right? So there needs to be some other um, thing that is thought through. But I think the most important thing that a developing country can do right now is to now just end the lockdown and sort of depend on its citizens to do the right thing. You're on mute, Lutri. <laughs> Sorry, Nishikawa san, can you hear me now? Yep. Um, we have a few questions, uh, but I wanted to start with one for you from Indonesia. Uh, just scrolling back up now. Uh, this is from somebody from the Ministry of uh, Planning in Indonesia. Um, still trying to find that, but I remember the question. So it's about when you said that it's not health or the economy, it is health and the economy. How do you actually implement that? Is it a mindset or is it a set of policies that underline that point? Uh, since I am the government of South, I have to say, of course, the government, you know, you know, encouraging such kind of concept. But in but, reality, the people's mindset, the people's understanding, the culture, or the people's daily thinking is a very crucial. So right. the, uh, how many people, the, the challenge is now how many people uh, can share that basic understanding? Of course, then, you know, the government power is limited. The social media or the broadcast TV, the everything, IT, you know, web, this kind of, you know, the uh, interactive uh, discussion is really important for every individual to change their mindset. The, uh, 100 years ago, we experienced another big pandemic, you know, 1918, 1990s. Uh, however, compared to such, you know, century ago, the, the transfer of the, a lot of people's movement uh, provide, you know, that makes the impact of the, you know, pandemics bigger and bigger. But uh, we can more easily share the information beyond the boundary, beyond regions. I got amazed that medical doctor can, you know, share their best experience between Japan, China, Italy, UK, and New York State. And also, uh, community mayor or the governor can exchange their best practice beyond Japanese prefectures or states or the, you know, beyond the boundaries. So therefore, the same as true for the every individuals. They can, a lot of opportunity, they have a lot of opportunity to learn that what is then important things uh, for their activities and how their one's activity can affect to the social impact. The, a lot of opportunity, a lot of, a lot of medias we can observe. So let's use that. That's our approach. So not only government, but also various, uh, you know, the opportunity we should utilize. Uh, that's my answer. Thank you, Nishikawa. So another question from Giuseppe um, is about, it's very specific. It says, from my um, information, Japan, has not been doing much teleworking in the past. Has it been socially difficult for people to get into that mode of teleworking in Japan? Uh, I should be honest, you know, the, 
first, there are many you know Japanese people had a difficult time uh, to make remote work, telework. But you know the, we learned a lot. They learned a lot. So therefore, the, you know the, this week, the Japanese government reopened the every city, every you know, prefectures, uh, so that no the uh, soft lockdown uh, we observe right now. However, there are some companies like then uh, Hitachi or the I, Japan IBM. Uh, they declared that they will continue the teleworking, uh, remote working, uh, even without COVID-19. So therefore, uh, we are gradually learned and uh, we are very accustomed to the remote working. And especially this, uh, once we started, this is very efficient. Uh, this, is, this is very comfortable for many businesses. Of course, then, you know, we cannot go drinking after the work, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that this is very effective. Thank you. Thank you. So more of the general questions. Actually, there's one um, or a couple that I'll lump together for rain about the UK. Um, the two questions were, one, do you think there should be a greater role for the corporate debt market um, that has not been explored so far? Um, I guess you deal with the infrastructure that you have, and the banking infrastructure was probably the best way to deliver uh, the loans to and through. And the related question was uh, digital currencies. Do you think the Bank of England would be using digital currencies now a lot more? Um, using the the backdrop of distancing as an excuse for that. Uh, yeah. So, so I think look on on corporate debt markets. I think the 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 real challenge, as you said, was was getting finances into companies um, rather necessarily than the companies themselves uh, issuing um, issuing debt. I mean, I think the. You needed a, I guess, essentially, you needed a government-backed scheme for it to work. And there's a whole, you know, argument about uh, the central bank using their own uh, balance sheet and and whether, you know, buying corporate debt as as part of that. But um, but that's really about you know bringing interest rates as low uh, as as possible. I think the bigger challenge actually around corporate debt, which the conversation on this is started some. Uh, City UK are actually leading uh, some some work on this. Is that I think if you roll forward to a year from now, we could have a position where lots of companies have a lot more debt uh, that is sustainable. So actually, I'd almost say the challenge is not how we use corporate debt more markets more. It's almost how we use it less and use equity more. Right. So I think at, in a year's time we may need more more mechanisms to reduce the overall level of corporate debt because we could see quite an overhang and that will limit business investment uh, and other things. And there may be, uh, you know, some companies where uh, they have got themselves into a position of too much debt, not necessarily through a fault of their own, but because of the, the crisis where you may want to see the government taking uh, more of a stake, probably at arm's length. People have talked in the UK about recreating an institution we used to have that evolved out of the post-war period, which became known as, as 3I. But essentially, you have either a, 
you know, and we have the British Business Bank, but that's, you know, it, it needs to be an evolution of that. So you have an institution that might take some equity stakes uh, in some companies to try and reduce the overall level of, of government debt, so of corporate debt rather, and that corporate debt might convert to equity over at a certain point uh, should those uh, companies find themselves in a position where the overall level of debt is not viable. So I think that's where the interplay on uh, corporate debt will, will come into it. I think on digital currencies, it's an interesting point. I mean, I think one of the things we will see is what an acceleration of the trend that was already there, that physical cash becomes less and less important in advanced economies. You know, uh, there's been simple measures like the limit on, you know, tap with your credit card uh, has been increased in supermarkets and other places just so people don't have to physically put in their pin. But but clearly people don't want to be touching money and passing it on to each other uh, at this point. I think actually the issue has been less about the central bank making direct payments uh, to companies or, or individuals. Ultimately, some of those decisions have to be made by the Treasury. If it's not about, uh, you know, in increasing the amount of quantitative easing, ultimately, and this is one of the things where I think people haven't, you know, realized if the Bank of England wanted to extend their commercial paper scheme to invest in more riskier companies to make that available to companies who are below investment grade, that needs to be a decision by the Treasury because that scheme is ultimately backed uh, by the UK government. Uh, so that's where I think you see the interplay between almost the Bank of England being the operator uh, and the Treasury bearing the ultimate uh, risk on behalf of the people. Because we have to remember this is ultimately taxpayers' money that's backing uh, some of those schemes. Thank you. So I have a question for Ailish. Um, and then a question for whoever wishes to answer. Ailish, your question will be on universal basic income. Has cash disbursement that we have seen in Canada and, and elsewhere for a finite period, does that amount to universal basic income? And is it something that has now entered the policy toolkit in a country like Canada? I'll give you a few seconds to think about that. The question for um, more generally, it, it's repeated in some form or the other. I see from Ecuador, uh, and there was another um, country from the global south, if you like, that made a similar point, which is that when the rich guys talk about supply chain disruption, it really is very serious for us in the global south, is I'm paraphrasing these questions, um, i.e. you could uproot and go somewhere else and we could be hugely dependent on one source of income or one route of transportation, which is no longer available right now. Um, so Christina from Ecuador is saying that we cannot go through the big countries anymore and we're transporting goods through parts of Africa. Um, how do we create new connections for the future that give us the resilience, us and emerging economies the resilience? Um, so that I guess what they're saying is we're not at your um, so exposed to you shifting and uprooting and, and that sort of stuff. So I'll come to that in a moment. Ailish, the question about, uh, you're muted. Uh, the question about universal basic income. So let me just say a few uh, key things. Um, we do not yet have universal basic income in Canada, 
but have uh, been doing a number of pilots and looking at this issue uh, in great depth, uh, looking at how specific populations, uh, how, how people, <laughs> how people will, let's make, not make this abstract. This is really, uh, this is about individual lives and, and dignity for all. So I think I just say three basic things. The first is to understand, and, and those who advocate for universal basic income, um, for all of us to develop a common nomenclature and it's very country or jurisdiction specific, what do you mean when you say universal basic income and what is included in that? Then I would layer on that we have to look um, at how different social systems inter interact with one another. I think it's been a huge set of learning from the COVID crisis uh, because we had to respond. I liked Ruben's point, the big difference between this and climate change is this is like now and immediate and the strength of your response is, is measured in, in days. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, we had to use the existing systems we had. So we used our unemployment uh, insurance scheme as well as our uh, tax system that was able to uh, do mass at scale, uh, entire pan-Canadian, entire national programs very quickly. And for universal basic income, the key question is when you have even more highly vulnerable uh, uh, groups, including those, for example, who um, are handicapped or different, differently abled, how do you then also include those fees and services? How do you recognize incredibly different variations in households? And I would focus specifically on children. So um, I think uh, universal basic income, the, the conceptually is something I, I could say we're, we're already approaching in Canada with universal health care, access to high quality public education, um, and then basic uh, levels of income provided by our Provincial and, and and in our case, subfederal units are absolutely essential partners in this. So uh, there are a number of partners. And then I would say, um, I think all of this is worth exploring in a more medium to long-term perspective when we're not worried about ensuring that no one falls uh, through the cracks and doesn't get access particularly to healthcare and shelter at this particular moment. Look for lots of, lots of complexity there and I look forward to learning from others uh, because I know this is a, a really important topic. Thanks. Thank you. Last few minutes. Would anyone like to take the other question about how do developing countries um, look to conduct their international diplomacy? Well, it's it's not. Uh, I think it was a question on resilience more than um, and the fact that you know you could get hurt very badly in a situation like this. Um, look, I I, I don't think this situation is any different because ultimately if it's wage arbitrage, I mean, people are going to uproot and go away anyways. So I think the key thing is you've got to do the structural reforms that are necessary within the developing countries so that you actually become a really attractive proposition for businesses to come and more importantly, businesses to stay. I don't think it's that different now versus um, four months ago. Right. So if you were struggling with, you know, the ease of doing business metric, for example, before, and you're yes. trying to improve on that, you should continue doing that. Um, Nishikawa-san, any last comments from you? Uh, final, we should more focus on the, you know, the necessary goods, daily necessary goods. The, and especially the, uh, for the emergency situations, the, how to create replacement or the substitute goods the uh, of the industrialized 
uh, organized commodities. The, for example, the, even you know, the emergency economy, uh, emerging economies or the developed economies, the, we should be very carefully think about the, how, to, how to create masks, for example. The, we don't have to buy masks. We can create masks with very little knowledge. <laughs> and of course then, you know, the ventilators created, you know, 70 or 80 years ago. So therefore the basic technology is very simple. So we, we means that everyone can, should create the substitute table goods in emergency times. The, by doing that, the, we can, you know, the, uh, prepare the future pandemic or the future disasters. That don't think about the to utilize to use ordinary industrial goods in any times. That's my view. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nishikawa-san. It's eleven thirty p.m. in Japan. So special thanks to you for for, for being here. Uh, we've come to the end of our time. Um, I wanted to thank everyone and also, I guess, apologize a bit because by construction we wanted to get the widest spread possible, which by definition means that we couldn't go into the depth of uh, as many of the, the issues raised in Q&A uh, as we have seen, but hopefully we've sparked um, thoughts and the seeds of a dialogue. Uh, what I would say to members of the audience who weren't able to, uh, who didn't have their questions answered, uh, please send me an email on my LSE email, it's there online, uh, and I'll try and uh, see if I can respond to those or ask them on, on Twitter and let's see if we can get some tweets back uh, in response to those. Uh, there are some questions about reference materials, you know, how, where can we learn more about Kerala and so on. I can try and get back to you with uh, links for that uh, as well. Uh, there'll be a survey immediately at the end of this uh, Zoom session. Uh, if you could, please, uh, I would uh, uh, request that you try and fill it out for us so that we can do better going forward. But otherwise, uh, this is the end of the session. Uh, my extreme thanks to the panelists uh, from all over the world, and uh, thank you to the members of the audience. Thank you all. Bye-bye.